All right, so we are in 1 Corinthians 6. Continuing on through 1 Corinthians, we're in the last section of chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And the topic before us today is sexual immorality. And I realize this is or may be a sensitive and difficult topic for, for many of us. And so let me just say a couple things up front before we get into it. First of all, most likely all of us have experienced some shame or guilt concerning sex. Or to put it another way, none of us are without the need to be cleansed and washed through the blood-bought grace of Jesus. Um, we all stand on level ground at the cross. There is only level ground at the cross. We are all needy, and the cross is sufficient. Secondly, understand that what determines yours and mine identity at the deepest level, who we are, is not what we've done or haven't done or what's been done to us, but whether we are in Christ or outside of Christ. Whether we belong to Christ or are separated from Christ. That is who we are. And to just consider this briefly, uh, I want to just look at the passage we looked at last week that Nate covered um, because it, it states this so wonderfully. So just a few verses right before our, our text that we're going to look at today. So back up to verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 6, just to consider this identity in Christ. So starting in verse 9, we see what our identity outside of Christ or before we come to Christ is. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. So apart from coming to Christ, we are defined by our sin. Our sin has the last word on us, and it stands against us. And it's not enough to merely say, well, God is love, and I'm sure he understands. God is love, but God is also just and holy and perfect, and he will not overlook or minimize or just shrug his shoulders at our sin. That's not how grace works. In part because our sin at its root is a rebellion against God's love. It is an attempt to go our own way and to convince ourselves that we know better what is best for us, what is good than God. So apart from being joined by, to Christ by faith, God's Perfect holiness is a threat to us because of our sin. But thankfully, that is not where this passage ends. That is not where the gospel ends. And so Paul goes on in verse 11. In a wonderful turn of events, and such were some of you. So he's speaking to the church, speaking to the church in Corinth. Such, all of those things that we just went through, such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, past tense. 
And that's not who you are anymore. Your sin no longer defines you. No matter how shameful you may feel about it, no matter how many times it continues to come up and, and feel like it condemns you, Jesus took on our sin. Jesus bore the condemnation that we deserved. Jesus is the overflowing mercy and the perfect justice of God embodied. God isn't just, God doesn't just have mercy. He is mercy, and he came in the person of Jesus to show us what that looked like. And so the call of the gospel, the call of Christianity, is come to Christ and find a new identity. Find grace. Cling to him. Give up every attempt to justify yourself, to be good enough on your own, to wash yourself of your own sin, and trust in Christ as the only sufficient Savior. But having done so, we are left with a question. What is our relationship as one who has been washed and sanctified and justified in Christ Jesus? What is our relationship then to sin? How are we to see sin? And that is where Paul is going to go in this next section, um, specifically considering sexual sin, because that was an issue among the Corinthians and, of course, it is still an issue in our day. So, starting at verse 12, Paul quotes some things that the Corinthians were saying. So, likely you have quotation marks in your, in your Bibles. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So again, you, your Bible likely has quotation marks here. These were not in the, original, um, in the original, but they were inserted because most people, most scholars think that um, these are things that the Corinthians were saying, and then Paul is responding to them. And, and they may even be things that Paul had said in some limited context, like there's some truth in this, but the Corinthians were applying much more broadly and incorrectly. So they were, they were saying all things are lawful or um, permitted or allowed or I am free and authorized to do whatever I want to engage and partake in all things. So this is part of the thinking among the Corinthians and this is kind of the opposite of legalism, right? Legalism is the belief that I must earn or keep up my salvation by what I do. It's all on me. I must do these things if I am to be saved and in God's love. But the opposite of this, the argument goes something like this. Because I am saved by grace, because we have been freed from the condemning power of sin, because the law and its demands have been canceled over us, all of which is true in Christ, then I am free to live however I want. What a wonderful arrangement. I love to sin. God loves to forgive sin. Let's go. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace. We'll come back to that concept. So this is part of the thinking that is going on among the Corinthians. 
But there's another piece to this that's important to consider. So that last quote that we have there in the beginning of verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, it's a little bit, we don't know for sure where the quotations are meant to be here. We don't know if that last part, God will destroy both one and the other, is part of what the Corinthians were saying or is Paul's answer. But either way, the Corinthians were taking a truth about food or dietary laws, that what you eat or don't eat doesn't make you clean or unclean before God, that these, sort of, these things don't have uh, eternal significance. And the Corinthians were assuming that this was true about all that we do with our bodies, including sexual activity. And the idea is that the physical doesn't really matter. that all that is material, including our bodies, is ultimately meaningless. It's the spiritual, it's our souls that matter, and salvation is something that God does merely inside of us, is merely a spiritual reality. God will save our souls but destroy our bodies. Um, this is an aspect of what is called Gnosticism. You may have heard that term. And if this is the case, that God saves our souls, but our bodies are, can be done away with and don't really matter, then the implication is, well, it must not really matter what we do with our bodies. And in Corinth, specifically, this was leading some men, and presumably most of them married, to go into prostitutes, presumably justifying it with, well, well, it's just like eating or drinking. It's just a physical bodily function. What difference does it matter? And so it's the, the combined thinking between, of these two things that grace means we are free to do whatever we want and that our bodies, our materialness doesn't really matter that Paul is responding to here. And he's going to give at least four reasons that this thinking is wrong and that specifically sexual immorality is unfitting for a Christian. So the second half of verse 13 kind of gets us into it, kind of states the point clearly. Paul writes, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So our bodies are made for God. Paul will end this section by saying, glorify God in your body. So the purpose of all that we are, including our bodies and our minds and our hearts and emotions, is to make much of, to honor, to give witness to God. We don't do this merely with our thinking and our beliefs. We don't do this merely with our emotions and our hearts. We do this with all of us. And one arena where we do, where we can either honor God or dishonor God is in the arena of our sexuality. Paul says clearly, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Um, this term sexual immorality it appears about 25 times in the New Testament. It's the word um, porneia, which is where we get our word pornography. It means specifically sexual intercourse with someone who is not your spouse, but it it's a much broader term than that as well. It's kind of like a, a junk drawer term, it's been called, that refers to all kinds of sexual sins, which the Bible goes on to define in, in many places. 
Now, just the very concept of sexual immorality is one that is increasingly foreign in our world. Because what that concept implies is, is that there is a moral or ethical component to sex and to our sexuality. Increasingly, the world that we live in doesn't think, uh, thinks that sex is morally indifferent, as long as it's consensual and as long as it doesn't harm anyone. Which leads to a very interesting and I would say contradictory view of sex. Because at one and the same time, our world seems to want to say that sex is nothing. It's insignificant. Just do it whenever and whoever you want. There's no rules or boundaries around it. But our world also wants to say that sex is everything. It's the most important thing there is. It's the most important thing about you. It's the highest form of pleasure. It is essentially a god. But Christianity says that sex is significant, created by God, and it's good. It's a good gift. And that it's purposeful, meant for procreation and self-giving love and, and pleasure. And because of these things, because of it is significant and purposeful and created by God, it has certain boundaries to guard its significance and purpose and to keep it beautiful. In other words, our sexuality can be according to God's design and thus be beautiful and glorifying to God and valuing of others and ourselves, or it can be against God's design and become ugly and dishonoring to God and devaluing to ourselves and others. So that's the big picture. That's the what of this passage. But like children, we always have questions. We always want to know why. And Paul gives us four reasons. He, he digs behind this and gives us the why. He gives us four reasons to trust and cling to God's view of sexuality. Four reasons that this is right and good and true and beautiful. So we'll work through these as we go through the rest of the passage. First, First reason to trust and cling to God's view of sexuality. God will raise our bodies, and so they are not meaningless. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. God raised the Lord, Jesus, and also will raise us up by his power. Now, you might at first wonder what, what this has to do with sexuality. But remember part of the thinking that was leading to this going into prostitutes among the Corinthians. They thought that bodies, the material world, is meaningless. Salvation is merely spiritual, has to do with our souls. Um, this is a, and this was a common view of that day, and it's still with us today. This was a common view of the Greeks. Uh, it's summed up well by uh, a commentator named Gormit Gordon Fee. He says that the spirit is somehow immortal but the body, along with the rest of the material order, is destined for destruction. This, he says, is a totally pagan view. The Christian creed says, rather, I believe in the resurrection of the body. This is what we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed. This is what Christians have always believed. In stark contrast to the Greek view, the Old Testament declares that at creation, 
God looked on the universe that he had made and pronounced it good. The final consummation looks for a new heaven and a new earth. And in that new order, the body is raised so that God's people will experience the final wholeness that God intended. You can look at the resurrection. Jesus didn't die and rise for us merely in a spiritual sense. He rose, died and rose again physically, bodily. And God's purpose for us is not merely to bring our souls into this ethereal, bodiless paradise, but to renew and resurrect all of us, body and soul, body and spirit, as we were made to be. So God says that our bodies matter, and what we do with them matters. Now, there are a lot of implications for this. Um, I mean, one perhaps somewhat silly one, but your online persona is not the full you. That persona that you might create, that some people might think is you, is not entirely false, but is not the complete you. You have a body. When it comes to church and just relationships, we were meant to gather physically, bodily with one another, both as a church and with those outside of the church. Um, it is not enough to merely engage one another in our thinking and, and perhaps reading books and, and engaging one another online. We are meant to gather like this together as bodies. This also means that when God cleanses us from sin and guilt, it is not merely a spiritual, emotional, or intellectual cleansing, but also physical. Where we have perhaps been abused, where we have perhaps used our bodies to abuse others, where our hands and our eyes and our ears has engaged in that which is evil, God cleanses us. Such were some of you. Whatever wickedness we may have done in the past is no longer who we are. It's not our identity. Not that we don't have consequences that we have to continue to deal with, but we deal with them as a washed, cleansed, and renewed child of God through and through, body and spirit. So our bodies matter. A second reason to trust and cling to God's view of sexuality, as Paul goes on here, our bodies are members of Christ and temples of the Holy Spirit and thus incompatible with sexual immorality. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, jumping down to verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Um, I think what he's getting at there is that we know that sexual sin affects us in deep and lasting ways. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 
Now, there's some symbolical language going on here that can be kind of hard to fully grasp, but it's painting a picture of a spiritual reality that we are connected to Christ in a very real and deep and significant way. Literally, the, the, the word member can mean a body part. You are a body part of Christ. And just like our arms and legs and eyes and ears and nose are connected to our body, so we are connected to Christ. And He works through us and He communicates Himself through us and He accomplishes His purposes in part through us. We are the body of Christ. We're also temples, dwelling places of the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus is called, is called Emmanuel, God with us, as when we come to Christ in faith, God's Spirit lives in and with us. And so if this is the case, if this is the nature of our intimacy with Christ, how unfitting it is for us to connect our bodies in a deep way to something like a prostitute to someone that is not our spouse, in an uncommitted, completely selfish act, minimizing the deep reality of sex. Paul says, let this not be. Never. These two things don't go together. Now, to fully understand that, we need to go to the next verse. To the third reason to trust and cling to God's view of sexuality. And that is that sexual intimacy is more than a physical act but a deep union. Verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So this one flesh union that we celebrate in marriage, the two becoming one, Paul quotes Genesis 2, Two will become one flesh in a deep and real way. Paul says occurs even when two people merely have sex. Now, the rest of the Genesis 2.24 passage does speak to what else is meant to be combined with the sexual act, and that is leaving father and mother and holding fast, clinging to one another. So this is all meant to go together as a complete package. This is marriage. And so Paul's not quite going so far as to say, well, when you, if you have sex with somebody, you're married. He's not going quite that far. But he is saying that the deep, mysterious, spiritual, sacred oneness that is intended for marriage is happening in some sense when two people merely engage in sex. And how unfitting for one who belongs to Christ, let alone one who belongs to a spouse, to enter into this oneness with another individual. One commentator says, and, and this may, may surprise you, but he says, Paul's theology of sexuality is profoundly humanizing in that it treats people with the care and dignity that creatures made in God's image deserve. Paul understands that sex has unique effects on a person's psyche. Because sex reflects the most intimate of personal, interpersonal relations among humans, 
It should be reserved for the most permanent of interpersonal commitments. Now, I said that might come across as insane to you. That what we are looking at and considering as God's view of sexuality is humanizing. Because we tend to think that what is humanizing is to let people do whatever they want. To let them be free from any external norms or commands, especially in regards to sex. That is the ethics of our modern world. But this completely disregards the idea that we are beings, in the cre beings created in the image of God and that God knows best what human thriving entails. Telling people or ourselves to do whatever you want is not actually humanizing if there is an actual objective reality an objective direction of human thriving and happiness and joy, a specific way we were created to live. And this leads to a fourth and final reason to trust and cling to God's view of sexuality. And that is that the purpose of our lives, including our bodies, is to glorify God. The overarching end to which we were created is to glorify God. So last verse and a half here, 19 and 20, you are not your own, but you, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so this gets back to how we began. What is to be our view of sin as a washed, sanctified, justified child of God? And the question is not, what am I free to do? What can I get away with and still kind of slide into God's eternal kingdom? That is the question asked by one, and of course we all ask it. But that is a question that we ask when we still think that we are our own. And we haven't been bought with a price. That is the question we ask when we think that God is perhaps maybe a Lord who deserves some obedience, but not a Savior who deserves complete submission. But if we were bought, purchased and redeemed and rescued from our sin and its just consequences before a holy God, by that very holy yet merciful and compassionate God, then we are not our own. And that is what God has done. He has purchased us. And so whatever your sin, your guilt and shame before coming to Christ, even today, if you are readily aware of your guilt and shame and you hear the invitation to come to Christ and grasp his compassion and his forgiveness, and you see that he is welcoming you to himself and you come in faith, none of that sin or guilt or shame is your identity. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, made right in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you were bought with a price, and the price was not cheap. It was costly. It was at the price of the suffering, rejection, and death of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, 
willingly out of love for us. Which means that there is hope for the sexually immoral. You can be washed and made clean. There is hope for adulterers. There is hope for those whose sexual sins are of the heterosexual nature or the homosexual nature. There is hope for those addicted to pornography. There is hope for thieves and greedy and drunkards and revilers. There is hope for you if your sins are perhaps more respectable, but no less a full-out rejection of your Creator. God doesn't desire to leave us in our shame and guilt, and He doesn't desire to leave us up to our own strength and methods to deal with it. He deals with it in a way, in the only way that actually works. As the psalm says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. He deals with them perfectly, sufficiently, once for all. That lingering sense that there is still something we must do, it has been done. We no longer have to justify ourselves to, to work to try to overcome and, and have our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. It is done. And yet God doesn't merely cleanse us, but He also empowers us to live differently, to no longer be a slave to our sin, including our sexual sin. His grace is not just amazing and sufficient and cleansing, but also powerful. God gives us His Spirit to change us. I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he puts it so well. He says, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. So cheap grace is just saying, well, God is love, He understands, and is not clinging to Christ. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it has cost God the life of His Son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. And if this is the case, if grace is costly, then the question is not, what can I still get away with? But what glorifies God? How can I honor this God with my life? If He is the treasure of greatest price, how can I get Him, be found in Him, and live for Him? And not just in spiritual matters, 
No, everything is spiritual. In that all that we do, everything, we have an opportunity to either honor Him or dishonor Him. Including in our sexuality. What we do with our bodies, what we do, look at out our eyes, what we consider in our minds, what we feel with our emotions. It's all an arena for honoring the Lord who bought us. So Paul says, flee from sexual, sexual immorality. Get up, run. Make haste, fight the fight every day. In the words of James, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And just consider that Paul is writing this to Christians. Men who are going into prostitutes. There is a need for us to heed this. Flee. Not in order to get God to love you. Not because God doesn't want joy and delight for you. And not because sex is inherently bad or dirty. But because you have been bought with a price and you are not your own. Be who you already are. You are washed. You are clean. You are sanctified in Jesus Be who you already are in Christ. Let's pray.